Welcome to Life Center Church. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and our church, visit lifecenternyc.com. Well, I'm very encouraged because, um, of course, you know, being up here, you really want to make sure that what you're saying, God actually wants you to say. And... Um, there's, I've been knowing about this for more than a month, and so, of course, praying about what to say. And for those who are at the retreat yesterday, Colt started with a passage. And before I pray, I want to read that passage, um, because this passage, I think, is far more significant than we often realize. It's something in the last couple years I feel like God has been impressing on me again and again and again. And so I want to read that out first before I open in a prayer. And it's the one that he read yesterday morning, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, where God calls Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. So, Father, we just come before you right now, God, and yeah, just in agreement with everyone's prayers, Lord, that this this would be your words only, that there'd be no idle word. Yeah, Lord Jesus, we just acknowledge the work of your Spirit in the room right now. Holy Spirit, would you just reign in each of us? Would you have your kingdom come? And would you, yeah, lead us into that way that we can experience the full blessing that you have for us, God? Not just for us, but for every family on the earth, God. Thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Uh, You got to wait for it, you know? So, um, to talk about this chapter, though, a little bit, um, there's a a commentary I read that said this, and just to reintroduce these verses once again and understand their significance. Robert Morgan writes, a professor in Bible college told us that the division between Genesis 11 and Genesis 12 was greater in importance than the division between the Old and New Testaments. The more I study the Bible, the more I'm convinced he was right. In the first 11 chapters of Genesis, God dealt with the whole earth in mass, the creation, the family of Adam, the flood of Noah, the Tower of Babel. God repeatedly demonstrated that the earth as a whole was bent toward corruption and destruction. The the word earth occurs 92 times in Genesis 1 through 11. Starting in Genesis 12, however, God launched a brilliant plan to provide redemption for all humanity. He chose one man, Abraham, and gave him a set of seven remarkable promises. As we read through the Bible, these promises unfold like forest ferns until all the realities of God's redemption are revealed. That's from a commentary called Precept Austin. We compiles different ones. But what I want to emphasize today to start is to understand the gospel, which everyone who typically comes to church, you know, we all say we believe in. This is absolutely essential, and I want to explain why in kind of three ways. First is how God plans to bless all the families of the earth. The second is then, what does it actually mean that he wants to bless them? Like, people say God bless you all the time, and it can mean, frankly, not very much. So what does it mean that God wants to bless all the families of the earth? And then third and finally, how do we take part in that? How do we become a part of that blessing if we feel like we're getting to start to experience it? Give it away. 
And so yeah, even talking about Genesis, if we go back to the very beginning where Adam and Eve are created, and we'll get into this more, a little more later, but when they fall and they eat the fruit, and God speaks to the serpent, and he pronounces a curse. And he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring, or seed, and her offspring, or seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So the whole book of Genesis, you go through this line of corruption that comes from that moment. There's a curse that's happened. And now the world that used to be under Adam's dominion, given by God, where God was the head of the household, and Adam was like the man he's put in charge of his household, now Satan's in charge. And we know that because when Jesus is tempted, Satan says, all the world's been given to me. If you just bow down and worship me, I'll give them back to you. And Jesus, of course, says, no, I'm going to worship the Lord my God only, and him only will I serve. But so that's this reality that we're facing, that there's some degree to which this whole world, every family on earth is affected by that curse. And so there's one promise, though, a singular word called offspring or seed that we follow through Genesis. Like if anyone's read the beginning, you have Noah's Ark, and it's all exciting and stuff. But you have all these really long genealogies of these Hebrew names that you can't really pronounce. And you're not really sure what this is here for or how this has anything to do with your life. It has everything to do with our lives if we believe in Jesus. Because the reason those genealogies are there is they're trying to trace where is this seed. Because God's whole redemption plan is going to start with that one person. And so we need to find out who is it. And then we get to Abraham and it's been corruption and curse and God even having to flood the whole earth and start again with Noah's family. But if you've looked at Noah's family immediately after the flood, didn't look that much better anyway. And so then finally we get to Abraham and this curse turns to finally, oh, thank you very much. This curse turns finally to, now I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. Everyone who descends from Adam and Eve, they're going to be blessed. So let's watch it unfold. And so going to actually Galatians chapter 3, Paul is talking about the nature of how we receive God's blessing, the true nature of the gospel. And he's talking to a Jewish community, or a Jewish and Gentile community, about how they've fallen into this trap of all the Gentiles thinking they need to be more like Jews. They need to circumcise themselves. They need to keep the Sabbath, things of this nature, in order to be righteous with God. And Paul is refuting that, not based just on arguments from the New Testament times, the days of Christ, but from Abraham. And so starting in verse 7 of chapter 3, after he said in the first verse, who's bewitched you, or essentially who's cursed you? Who's made you fall again from the blessing that you once received? In verse 7 he says, Know then that it is those of Abraham... Who, uh, those of faith, rather, who are the sons of Abraham. So blessing comes by faith, and it means that in order to receive the blessing of God for anyone, not just if you're Jewish, you have to become part of Abraham's family. That's a little bizarre to me. And then Jesus, on multiple occasions, addresses this specific topic also, because he says that this is one of the most important things in the whole Bible, is being a son of Abraham. He spends a whole chapter, John chapter 8, discussing with religious leaders about this very topic. And they say, we're sons of Abraham, we're descendants of him, we're in the temple right now. And Jesus says, you're sons of the devil, and you do his will. That's a pretty startling realization, of course. But the point of that being is because that curse that started with Adam and Eve, for them, it had not been broken. The reason it was broken for Abraham, we're about to see, but it was something to do with faith, not works, not ancestry. Jesus even says to Zacchaeus in Luke 19, 9 through 10, who Zacchaeus was the hated tax collector. He says, today salvation has come to this house 
since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So just because you put your righteousness in the things that you do, Zacchaeus, who is actually a descendant of Abraham, I'm going to affirm that he's part of this family too, but unlike you, he actually believes in me, even though he's a wicked, wicked man in many ways. So just let's keep this in mind. So as the scripture goes on in chapter 8 of Galatians chapter 3, sorry, verse 8 of Galatians chapter 3, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you, all the nations or families that that can be used interchangeably, but we'll touch on that, will be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And also, when I read this, I thought that's quite bizarre because when I hear God's promise to Abraham, I don't think he told him Jesus died for your sins so you could go to heaven one day. But clearly those, I mean, obviously that's part of the gospel that Jesus dying on the cross, rising from the dead to justify us. But what God is speaking to Abraham is directly linked to that. And the point is because Abraham put trust in God that went to his offspring, that he would give a sacrifice on his behalf. And this is seen in Genesis chapter 22, where he's asked to offer his son Isaac. So God tells him to go to the mountain. He goes with Isaac. He doesn't have a sacrifice. His son asks him. He gets to the point where he's actually about to do it. My son Jairus is cheering me on. Uh, <laughs> He gets to the point where he's actually about to do it, and it says the angel of the Lord cries out to him not to do it. And he says to Abraham a second time from heaven, this is starting in verse 15. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will multiply and surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So yeah, that was Genesis chapter 22 verses 15 through 18. And so the point being here too, that Abraham recognized that this family he had did not belong to him. It was given by God. He had a son before, Ishmael, with Hagar, but God said, that's not your promised child. God gives him a promised child like 14 years after the original promise. He gets him, and he tells him, sacrifice him, and Abraham's willing to do so. Why? Because God was the head of his household. And there's debate about this part in particular, um, theologically, but when the phrase, the angel of the Lord, is used in the New Testament, There's particular things that are different than just a regular angel because if a person worships a regular angel, the angel's going to tell them, don't worship me, I'm I'm not God, I'm an angel, I'm just a messenger, worship God. But when people bow down to worship the angel of the Lord, he receives it. And the angel of the Lord seems to have an authority that goes far beyond all the just other angels of the Lord. And so many theologians, and again, this is up for debate, but actually think this is pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. That he's come in some form and flesh and again it's a bit of a mystery how but so picture this that Jesus is speaking to Abraham saying don't sacrifice your son because Abraham's seen that there's a ram caught in the thicket sacrifice this instead and he says because you've done this in your offspring all the families of the earth will be blessed obviously what is Jesus thinking of I'm gonna be that one 
I'm going to be your son later on, many thousands of years away, and I'm going to come into humanity, I'm going to put on flesh, and I'm going to live a perfect life that you actually couldn't live, that Adam and Eve couldn't live, and I'm going to take this on myself, and so you don't have to give your son, I'll give myself instead. And because I give myself, not just your family, but every family on earth will be blessed. And so going on in Galatians, Paul says um, that this is something very specific to um, not, not just understanding the, the Jewish kind of laws, but going back to the original curse. So starting in verse 10 of Galatians 3 again. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And so there's yeah, two parts to the curse. There's one that if you try and follow God's law, which he gave to Moses, which he's quoting here, Moses, after getting the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai and giving them the whole law, the Pentateuch, which we have now, he says right at the very end of his life before he's taken, he dies and goes up to heaven, these are 12 things that if you do them, cursed be that person. And this actually is where I want to bring in some of my own testimony um, about how God's brought blessing in my life. Because out of these 12, four of which specifically had, regard, had some regard toward sexual immorality. And from the very beginning of the curse, we'll see this. But before I get to that, I even just want to share a little bit of my life of how I kind of arrived at understanding God. So um, family this weekend, we talked about, I grew up in a really loving family. Um, I, I've got three younger siblings. I've got two parents who love each other, who always told us they loved us. They showed it. They expressed it. Uh, but spiritually, we're a very mixed household. My mom grew up very Catholic. My dad grew up kind of much more like, you know, agnostic sort of. His parents started going to church later on, but his dad was still an atheist teaching Sunday school, which is bizarre. <laughs> but so I grew up in a household where we had like a Nepalese prayer wheel we got from this trip where I would spin it thinking I would get blessings in my life because I'd bring good karma. And we had a, you know, a little prayer bowl, so if we wanted to do meditation sometime. And we go to church, and when we lived in the United States, we moved back to Australia, we stopped. And when I was living in the United States the first time, so I was, I was actually in the U.S. in elementary school, um, I had a friend who I actually went to Sunday school with, and he showed me something on his laptop that his brother had left, and it was internet pornography. Um, and now we know this is pretty common for kids around this age, but, you know, obviously for me, I was like, whoa, this is crazy. And I was actually hooked. I got really interested in it. But as time went on, as I got through middle school, I just start to feel really empty inside. Like, this doesn't feel right. I don't feel good about myself when I do this, no matter how hard I try to justify it. Like, I, I just thought people's rules, religion, that's all just stupid. But let that get in the way of just having good times, essentially. And I wanted to do stuff, but thankfully God blocked that. And so then I got to the point where I was just kind of alone in this, where I didn't really talk to anyone about this pit I was feeling. I didn't say I feel empty in my soul, but I knew that's exactly what I felt like. And so at the very beginning of eighth grade, my family got sudden news with my dad's job that we're moving back to Australia. And we had a few moves that happened quite suddenly. And I kind of made this vow to myself at that time. I'm not going to look at some of this stuff anymore. And I gave particular like rules and categories so I made exceptions to those rules later on because it was just some vow to myself, right? But I started to recognize as, oh, you know, this doesn't feel right, so let me just push it off a little bit at least. And the bizarre thing about that is that as I started to push it off, I could actually feel that I can't actually get away from this totally. 
Well, I can change some of the behavior, but something's wrong in my heart. And a year into being in Australia, I had a much tougher time than I expected settling into school. I went from like president of my middle school to not really having any friends, a new guy in an old boys school in Australia, and struggling with that. And my mom gives me this book about basketball players. And she didn't even realize it was about God. It was called Playing With Purpose. That's all she saw. She saw Jeremy Lin. She didn't even know who he was, but she saw him on the cover. He's like, he looks like a basketball player. <laughs> Bought it for me, gave it to me, and that, that's all. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I don't read much, but this looks pretty cool, so I'll give it, I'll give it a try. And um, the first chapter surprised me. It was a story of a, a man named A.C. Green, who some throwback basketball fans would know. He played with the Lakers a little bit in like the late 80s, early 90s. And he's got the NBA record for most consecutive games played. He was a real tough guy. But he's also got this other record there's actually a documentary about and which he's also famous for, which is he's known to be the NBA's longest standing virgin. And that's what he talked about in this book, which he talked about he played on the same team that would go to the Playboy Mansion. That's how like, people like Magic Johnson got HIV and stuff. Like that was this team. And he would have call girls sent to his room by his teammates. And I remember, think of it like a ninth grader just sitting in his room like hearing this. And he would stop and pray for them through the door. He wouldn't open the door. And he'd just say, God loves you far too much for me to do this with you. And I just respect you too much. And you have more than this. And God loves you, so I'm going to pray for you right now. And he started praying for them on the spot. And I knew that what I believed in, however my morality was in this regard, was definitely wrong. And when I read that, I think, that's right. That's way better than I am. So I was interested. And the book went on, and it just talked about different players. Steph Curry, Jeremy Lin, Landry Fields, they all did Bible study. And I was like, I've never read anything in the Bible myself. I mean, I, I, if you asked me, I would have told you I'm a Christian, I'm a Catholic. But, um, I, yeah, I've been taking First Communion and stuff like that, but I've never read a Bible in my life. So I told my parents for my 15th birthday, which is right after this, I would like a pull-up bar, a jump rope, and a Bible. <laughs> and they were surprised. <laughs> the first two made sense. <laughs> But they were a little shocked. And my mom, actually, because her parents are such strong Catholics, and they pray for the whole family by name every day and plead the blood of Jesus over the whole family and just, you know, lift us all up to God. She emailed them and said, hey, you know, Lachlan asked for a Bible. And they were excited, like, oh, good on you, Lachlan, you know. Eldest of the grandkids, leading a good example. <laughs> but I, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. <laughs> I just thought, this is a book. I'm just going to read it cover to cover. Simple as that. So I read the stuff in Genesis we're talking about, and some of it was familiar, and it was interesting. I was like, you know, I didn't know that the rainbow was a symbol of God's covenant to Noah. I was like, oh, there you go. never knew that. That's cool. And then keep going. I get to Moses and the Exodus. I was like, oh, I've seen this in Prince of Egypt before. It's a little different this time, but, like, you know, stuff like that. Um, but then I got to the, if anyone knows the second half of Exodus, and then Leviticus, and then Numbers. I didn't make it to Deuteronomy. <laughs> I didn't get that. Um, actually, for English class in year nine in Australia, we had, to, we had to have like a book we were reading outside of class, just like any book you could choose. And so I just, I was like, I want to start reading the Bible. So I'd start bringing that to school and reading that. And people would ask me about it, but I don't know what's going on. So I'm just trying my best. And, and people were kind of laughing at me a little bit. But I was like, no, I'm like, I'm intrigued. You know, I've heard something that's interesting to me. And so at this point, actually, I have a conviction from the Holy Spirit. I didn't realize that's what that was. But I was experiencing conviction that I need to live differently. So I knew even at this stage, I already started talking to people about, I think I'm not going to do some of the same things I was doing before, because I had done a Google search, what does God say or Jesus say about sex or something like that, and I got this verse, 
you shall not commit adultery. Uh, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And I was stunned because I realized, oh, that's me for sure. And I'm only 15 years old, but I knew that that means I'm abhorrent in the sight of God in some way. That the people who I hear about, you know, parents of friends and stuff who have an affair and, you know, destroy the whole family. I was like, oh, I'm, I'm that bad morally in the sight of God. And that was the first time I realized, like, I, I'm not actually, like, that good of a person. And so I felt awful about that. <laughs> you thought that's funny, Jara? Yeah. <laughs> um, <you> just <laughs> keeping his dad humble. That's good. <laughs> um, but so I, I realized I needed to be better than that. Because I thought if I start being a better person, then maybe my shots of getting into heaven will be higher. I didn't realize how that worked. So going back to Galatians, because um, this will maybe help answer some of our questions about what I'm talking about. Starting from verse 11 of uh, Galatians chapter 3 again. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. And so this is part of what started happening was I realized I was completely unable to accomplish what I had set out for. Living a much better life in terms of my way and approach to girls, I would still think a lot of the same thoughts. I mean, I was a teenage boy who was like, I can't get this out of my mind. And so I just became kind of hopeless and actually started being really afraid of God because I thought he just was hating me probably because I'm trying to do better, but... Um, failing, so I just felt condemned. And I had all sorts of weird links with karma and stuff. Like, I thought if I did good, then basketball will go better. But if I did poorly, that's why we lose the game. I didn't play well. Like, just. But over time, I still, this conviction kept settling deeper and deeper and deeper. And the more I started talking to people about it in my family and friends, no one else I knew believed this stuff. So I was actually kind of getting persecuted a little bit for it. Like I get made fun of and my family is like, what is going on? And I'm telling my family I need to believe in God because otherwise they're going to hell. But I didn't even understand that for myself. And as you can imagine, that didn't bring a polite response. So <laughs> I, I was struggling with this for some time. And I started watching YouTube videos to answer my questions. I remember this one called Why I Hate Religion But Love Jesus. And I remember showing it to my friends at school. And they thought it was strange. But I was like, this is, this is the voice of God. Because he's talking about that you don't just go to church for religion. You, you go to church because of, of God, because of Jesus. You, you want to connect with him, right? And I, that hadn't even occurred to me before. And he started talking about how Jesus actually came to seek and save the lost, just like we talked about. And that was also foreign to me because I thought religion was for good people, not for the broken. And so going to uh, next verse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And skipping one verse ahead. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. And so what I started to realize is I felt more and more condemned and went through the cycle of watching sermons and doing this all the time. My mom stepped into my room like, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I'm watching this thing on Gospel of Mark. She was like, you know, strange, walked out. But 
as if watching this stuff, they're talking about like the sinner's prayer and coming to Christ. And I was like, okay, yeah, like that's me. I'm, I'm in. But as I continued to go deeper and deeper, I got to this dark pit about a year in. So the book I read about basketball players, that was the summer before ninth grade in Australia, uh, before year 10 in Australia, it was this particular summer. And summer in Australia is like December, January. And so during this time, um, I am watching so many sermons and also getting into all sorts of bizarre stuff like hypnosis so I can block my feelings. Literally, I felt so trapped. And I got to even a point I remember where I literally thought, I have doubts about God all the time, and this is so hard. Like, my family seems to have a distaste for me a little bit now. They find me rather obnoxious when I felt quite likable to them before. My friends, well, there weren't that many good friends in the first place, but the ones I had, they still thought it was all bizarre. And now I'm just torn up inside, and I just think, why wouldn't I just give up on God? Because life would be easier. I have doubts about whether this is real all the time. I'm not even sure about this, you know? So I just thought, let me, let me grab one of those. Let me think of one and just latch on and just take that all the way to being able to do whatever I want again. Oh, Jairus, okay. And I remember that moment so clearly because actually uh, I had like a window on this side. And the, it, was, it was like very high up so you could only see the sky. I remember looking up that way and just thinking like, yeah, maybe I'll give up. And then I couldn't. Because I knew that God had shown himself to me. I knew that he was pursuing me. I knew he was seeking me. And it was so strange to me why this was all happening. But that there was something for me that he wanted. And I kind of thought, well, okay, this is it. Like, if this is true, I know I've heard all the sermons now. I've, I've read some of the stuff. Like, you know, I, I think I need to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and trust him with everything else. That's, that's it. That's all. And that didn't fully get me out of the trap, but there was a breakthrough there. And I got a couple months ahead, and I even went to a school counselor, which was sadly actually a big mistake. I went to a Catholic priest once. He gave me great advice and talked about the gospel. I went to a school counselor, and she told me, well, pornography use is very normal in adolescence. That's my specialty in psychology, so it's fine if you want to watch this stuff. Just don't get addicted to it. And I was getting close to getting free, but still just in bondage with a lot of this stuff. So I went home. Watched again, and I remember the room got so dark. And this was now February, so it's still hot and sunny outside. But my room felt so dark, and I, I felt like I just I couldn't get out. There, there's just some, I was like, there is darkness inside me, and it's all around me, and I, I think God must be done with me now. And so I Google searched, is there any sin that God can't forgive? And, of course, I found out, no, not one. I watched this video, I remember, by the same YouTuber who made the video I mentioned before, and he said that those two verses about forgiveness, one, that God casts your, your sins into the sea of forgetfulness, and he talked about like how deep the Marinara Trench or whatever, whatever that place is called, uh, um, that, how deep that is, <laughs> and, um, and he said God puts it there and it's never coming back, and the other one that this really hit me, um, <laughs> he said, he casts your sins away from you as far as the east is from the west. And if you could go east forever, you would never go west. Wow. And so I thought, so that's it. I'm just forgiven by God. And it wasn't like some eureka moment. I didn't have some encounter. God stepped in the room. Nothing like that. I just, subtly, it, it sank in over time. 
And so what I began to understand was that God has this redemptive plan where we get free by accepting his forgiveness first. And that was the gospel, of course, but I had never understood it in my life. I've been to some church before. And for anyone who hasn't heard that before, I cannot emphasize that enough. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You will never be good enough by your good works for God. And so even going back to now, the beginning of Genesis 1, to explain this further. In Genesis 1, 31, um, God says that all of creation at the very end, this is the sixth day, is good. But when he creates man and woman on the last day, right before he rests, he says it's very good. That there's something about that that was distinct, that was different. And it's a few verses before, in some ways, is that verse 27, God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the sea, and the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So Adam was given dominion by God, and of course God's still in charge, but, you know, he's like, the head servant, and even as Luke calls him, he actually says, who's Adam's father? God. There was no one else who fathered Adam. God made him, and so in that sense, he's his father, and in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 3. And then we have something very interesting, which is God decides to start humanity with a marriage, because Adam's alone, and God sees that, and it's good. It's not like Adam was like by himself, and Adam was like sulking, like, where is someone for me? You know, nothing like that. It's just everything was good, but God said there's something better. There's something missing. And so he creates Eve from his side. And one of the most beautiful commentaries I remember reading on this is that not to be above him or beneath him, but to be by his side. And the word helper was used for her. And we shouldn't think helper like a servant or a slave. We should think helper like the Holy Spirit. That same word is used for the Holy Spirit. And we'll get to more of that later on. But then the curse happens. So we all familiar with the story probably in some way. They eat the fruit. Eve eats it first because she didn't understand something that Adam was meant to tell her. Adam was given this instruction, you will only eat of, you can eat of any tree in the garden, but not this one. And somehow the serpent goes to Eve first probably because Adam hadn't told her what he ought. And so Eve gets deceived and she eats the fruit and God says, if you eat this fruit, you will die. And so spiritually they die. She gives it to Adam. He dies too. And they live a life, but it's a dead one essentially is God saying. They get cast out of the garden. And God curses the serpent, as we read before. But then he also actually gives this curse to Adam and Eve. And I, I want you to hear in the father's voice in this sense, that when he says this, I'm sure it was not God saying, I'm so upset with you. That it says he started in the cool of the day, right? He came by, the way they used to walk with him. Just picture that. They came in the cool of the day to walk with Adam and Eve. And now he comes into the garden and they're lost. They're hiding in the bushes because they're afraid and ashamed of what they've done. And God says, where are you? Obviously, we, many people have talked about this, not because he doesn't want, know where they are, but because he wants them to realize you're lost. And he says something to Eve that I want to focus on, which is he says, your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And I wonder how much of the calamity in humankind can be linked to even that one verse, that we started with a marriage that was very good, God said. And now that foundational relationship that all the world is kind of built on, every single one of us here is descendant from those two and their marriage. Those marriages are all broken in some way. And imagine how much that hurt God. Because he made Adam and Eve to be together, that this was going to be perfect. They're the perfect fit for each other. 
that Adam delighted in her when she was made. Finally, this is flesh, my flesh, bone of my bone. Like they were so excited. God was happy for them and now it's destroyed. And my life is a symbol of that in some ways is that my corrupt desires and ultimately every man's come from this problem. Objectification of women, the sex slave trade, pornography, I mean, just stuff in media generally. How much is problems in marriage that come from just this problem? Man just doesn't see Eve as his helper anymore. Disagrees with her and dominates her instead. Jesus came to do the opposite. He came to serve and he even tells his followers, you now love your wives like I love the church. Serving. I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And so I want to now come to a passage where we understand how Jesus recaptures this dominion and takes it back. So we've got this understanding now that Jesus is the second Adam. I hope you get that's where I'm going for that. Like it says this in Romans 5, the end of 1 Corinthians, I think it's like 1545. Um, And we'll go to Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 9 through 27. And so Jesus uses this phrase in the Gospels, the son of man more times than any other descriptor for himself. And because of that, I think this is probably one of the most important passages in the entire Bible. And I didn't understand it till the last couple of years. And that's part of why I want to talk about it today and felt like God was impressing it on me. Jesus is eternal. He didn't start. And so when God made Adam and Eve, he already knew where he was going. And when he told Abraham, and you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, and in your offspring, he knew that from the beginning, this is what would have to happen. And so I think in some ways, Daniel's having a vision here, and I'm going to kind of partial revelation as I'm saying it, but of something that this could have happened long before time began. This is something that takes place outside of time. And there's a lot of strange, uh, strange is the wrong word. There's a lot of really specific context to this passage I'm going to read that I will not explain and will be confusing. And I highly recommend anyone... Go read this passage, study it, look up meanings of the verses and stuff like that. It's a historical prophecy, but it exists outside of time. So starting from verse 9, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His thrones was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. So he said, Daniel 9, uh, Starting Daniel 7, sorry, verse 9. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And I'll let you know that the horn is the Antichrist. And as I looked, the beast, which is the Antichrist government, was killed. And its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, the dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And again, there's conjecture on some of this stuff. The horn is like Satan empowers one political leader to take over at the end of the world. But I won't get into that stuff right now. (laughs) Verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. When Jesus is on trial, 
he says to them one specific verse in response to, are you the Christ? And he's been silent this whole time. But he says, I'll give you one answer. I am invoking the name of God used in when Moses, God spoke to Moses in the bush. And he says, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. And they said, blasphemy, because they knew the meaning of this verse. You must be saying you're God. And Jesus said, I am. <laughs> he was okay with that. He said, you need to know who I am. I am the Son of Man that's described in Daniel specifically. So reading on, and many prophecies here, we won't get into them all, but starting from verse 15 of Daniel chapter 7. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four beasts are four great kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Yeah, actually, I think I realized I misspoke. The beasts are kings. The horn, I think, is the power behind the Antichrist, but going on. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns which were on its head, and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, the horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and he shall wear out the saints of the Most High. Know this, that in the end of times, it will not look like Christians are winning. That if you're a follower of Jesus, on the earth's perspective, it will be a terrible time. Because Satan will be having, taking, more taking more control of more power and government than ever before. It will not be civilized and pleasant. He shall speak words against the Most High, shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment. That's the court of heaven we just read about before. And his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. So Jesus comes on the clouds of heaven to receive all of the nations that Adam lost from God. And so if there is a place on this earth that the gospel, the kingdom of Jesus Christ has not touched, it will go there. That's promised. It does not say it will be easy. It doesn't say it will be peaceful. It might be very hard. But every single language, every tribe, every tongue will come to serve and worship him because God said so. And so even in my own family, this is part of like the redemption story for my own family, right? Is that I'm one of four kids. I've got parents. I've, I'm the oldest, I think, 17 cousins on my mom's side and like eight on my dad's side. And apart from my mom's parents and me, no one else I really think is saved. Most, many are atheists. And I'm contending for the same thing that in my family and even in Australian culture, yeah, dominion will be given to Christ. And my praying grandparents who prayed me into the kingdom by pleading the blood of Jesus over me every day in the morning, their prayers will be answered. And what measure that's in, 
that sometimes takes to a meeting with Christ where you really ask him what that will look like in your family. But every person in the world can rest assured that there is no family that will be left untouched. God has promised it already. It will happen. He said so. And even going to Daniel 9.24 just briefly, it says 70 weeks, which are again relating to this prophecy, I decreed about your people to Daniel and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. That's the purpose of God. The reason Jesus will bless the earth is because he'll stop those things. And so the curse that happened at the fall, things like in my particular story, the breakdown in marriage, it will be redeemed. And part of the way that's evident in this text, God just showed to me, like I think it was last night, because the whole time he kept talking about this text, I kept asking, how is this related, Lord? And something very interesting here that we should, you know, should notice, he says it three times, and it should almost prompt a victory shout immediately, where it says, his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, all dominion shall serve and obey him, but he shall get the, the whole greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Not just to Jesus, not just to God, to his people. Why? Because he says at the very end that there's coming a wedding supper of the Lamb, that the church who believes in him is his bride, and just like Adam was given dominion over the whole earth and then told to share it with Eve and protect her and help her know how we're going to steward this together. I've received this from God, now this is our job. Jesus has received from God the dominion over all the earth. And when he gives a great commission, it's almost like God speaking to Adam and Eve in the beginning, go, be, for, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion over the whole earth. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I commanded you. And behold, I'll be with you to the end of the age. So Adam got instruction from God. Then he was given his wife, Eve. He was meant to protect her and tell her how to walk in it. He failed. Satan took over the household. And then God provided from himself in Christ the second Adam who came to retake it from, this, from the serpent. And so now that's why marriages can look different. And that's why ultimately this will be fully fulfilled when Jesus comes back for his bride. But this brings me to kind of my last section and my last warning to you all, um, one that God has been giving me, which is why I share it. Um, and actually, the worship team could come up now, too, to get ready for the end. But God's plan for humanity is redemption. And we know that so he's going to bring people from every family on earth to be part of his bride. But one of the things that actually came away from on paternity leave when uh, we had Jaira in April. And those two months were interesting because, of course, you don't get a lot of sleep. But then sometimes you wake up late at night and I change a diaper. I'm like, I'm awake now. I might read a little bit of the Bible and spend time with God. <laughs> And during that time, God started really gripping me through the gospel of Matthew. Because one of the things I noticed is he said again and again, I'm going to come back, but in the last days, many are going to fall asleep. And many are actually going to fall away. And I'm assuming, of course, that not all, but most in this room are Christians. And the warning from God is that in the end times, when this all is getting ready to come, Jesus says, be ready because you might not be aware of it when it's coming if you're not looking for it. And so God, I even ask you help with this right now. But yeah, I want to read from the, the Gospel of Matthew chapter um, 24. And this is right at the end of the chapter. And speaking of this idea of God is the head of a household, uh, and just to share with that, I got the idea from actually, I got to meet Caitlin's yeah, yeah, 
her grandfather, um, before he went to be with the Lord, and that's a marvelous story because he was about to pass away at one point that summer, and God told me on the subway when I was praying for him, he's not going to die, you're going to meet him. And I realized why. He was a really extraordinary man of God, and like every man, he had his flaws. But um, in his room, he had this little plaque, and in, in Chinese, it read, well, I'll translate it for you, it just read, Christ is the head of my household. And for us to understand that we're not the head. If you're a man here and you're like, I'm the head of the household, I'm the guy. You're God's servant who's been put in charge as a steward, but you're not the king. If anyone's ever seen Lord of the Rings, like you know how Aragorn's king and there's a steward that's waiting for him, he's not allowed to sit in his throne, that kind of idea. But you're a steward of God's household, but you're not in charge. You know, Pastor Phil and Tammy, the reason that they're such great leaders is because they very much understand Jesus is in charge. <laughs> And so anyone, no matter what position of authority you're in, it was given to you by God so you could steward it until God takes it back in a sense. And when Jesus comes back, he'll be given all dominions on the earth and he'll give it to the people, the saints of the most high. But Jesus will still be the king. And so understanding this then in relation to a household, Jesus gives this warning after he tells his disciples about what will happen before the end comes. Starting in verse 45 of Matthew 24. Who then? is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant who his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and will put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So don't worry, I have an encouragement just at the end. But <laughs> I want to begin with this because Jesus actually tells us there will be people who at one point were awake and will fall asleep. And part of my encouragement is that the last part that I mentioned earlier about how we can be involved in bringing this blessing that God has given to all the families of the earth. We can be workers with God. The blessing God wants to give you for your family is not just for you and your family. And so we'll do an altar call at the end, but to say like, oh, I, want, I just want my whole family to be saved and that's it. That's not the altar call. I, I pray that. I pray that for my own family. I want all my family to love Jesus with all their mind, heart, soul, and strength, right? I mean, my mom and dad, I always talk to them about this stuff. My mom and dad have been also going to church and having many wonderful conversations about this and the work that God's doing in their life. My mom even texted me something this week. She's like, God just spoke to me. He says, you're going to be a great leader. That's all. I was like, amen. I received that. Um, but so I, I see God working in my parents. But I also know that the blessing of my family is not so we can all be a happy Christian family. It's for the whole world. And so part of being involved in the Great Commission is actually what keeps you awake. If you're getting the world prepared for the glory of God to be revealed at the return of Christ, you won't be falling asleep to the fact that Jesus is coming back because that's all you're thinking about all the time. And so be that faithful steward. Be the one who you're faithful to what God trusts you with. And I don't know what that is. We'll have to each ask God that ourselves, whether it's going to a foreign land, whether it's staying here, whatever it may be. But trust God that if you give yourself fully to Him, you lose your life, you'll find it. And you'll lose your life not just for your sake, but for your family's sake. And then at the very end, talking about the helper, which I mentioned before, so I'll close with this. The Holy Spirit is called the helper in the Bible, and the same word is used for Eve. 
And Jesus in his ministry, he actually waited until the Holy Spirit came when he was baptized to do anything. And he said that he was the bridegroom. And there's something about the role of the helper that we're actually meant to fit into. Because why does it say in Revelation chapter 22, one of the last verses of the whole Bible, verse 17, it says, the spirit and the bride say come. God has an eternal family. He wasn't lonely upstairs. But he wanted to grow his family. He wanted to bring us into it. And so that's why he had us. He made us. And so we can receive something from God where we become so one with his spirit that the spirit's desires are ours. And that's how we know we're the children of God. And so even for everyone, like my last challenge, um, as we come into a moment of prayer and ministry and also the ministry team, I want to welcome you to come to the front. The first altar call is, of course, if you've never put your faith in God and never trusted him for your salvation to free you from the curse, this side is for you. Come up here to my right. Um, And that is probably the most precious thing that could ever happen today. And then for everyone else who wants to come up and receive prayer, to rededicate themselves to the Great Commission, to the calling of God to be part of preparing the earth for the world's return. And that doesn't mean leave your family and leave them behind. That means make your family whole. Let it be so right that the world sees and says, what is going on here? There's something beautiful and it must be God. So yeah, I'll close us out in a prayer and then we're worshiping just free anyone who wants to come up. But yeah, Father, Father, would you find us faithful so that when you return, Jesus, you'd find faith on the earth. That we'd be living as those who believe that you became a curse for us. And just like the prodigal son who ran away, that we would know, Father, that you're just waiting to welcome us home. And all the effects of all the evil things we've done before, that can be gone. You took that on the cross, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we come before you and just ask, Lord, that you bring people home today, God. You welcome them home. And for the other half of the room, Lord, thank you that you have called us to prepare the earth for your return. To serve you, God. Yeah, that it's impossible to fulfill the first commandment to love God without caring about his commissioning to us. So, Father, we thank you, God, for your commissioning that you said go into all the earth. There's no place that your love will not touch. And keep us awake, Jesus, so that we're ready. Yes, yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can also follow us on Instagram at LifeCenterNYC or YouTube at LifeCenterChurchNYC.